After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. It's mind-rolling. David Silver and myself, Raghu Marcus. We're back. Hello. Hi. Hi, Raghu, and hi, anybody who's listening and kind enough to listen to us and support us. We immediately start off with uh, gratitude to you. And um, And a train. And a train. And your train on on the Hudson River, right? David lives right on the Hudson River. It's beautiful. Yeah, and it's uh, telling you that's, I had that all coordinated, uh, that little um, train noise is to celebrate. Just to get it going. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. (laughs) Anyways, Uh, to celebrate your support, which, um, you know, we appreciate and um, we hope you will continue. This is our 109th podcast, which... You know, is amazing, really. Yeah. No, you know, because Raghu's a very busy man. Yeah, and, right. you know, does podcasts throughout the nation. Around the world. Podcasts. All and sundry people who ask him. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm a little busy, too. Anyway, how are you feeling this morning? Oh, all is good. Uh, yesterday was Mother's Day. Uh, uh-huh. And um, so we should do a call out for all the ma's out there, and uh, I was driving nearby here, taking my hounds out there for a walk in the forest, and there's a lot of churches here, Dave, as you know. Yeah. And I passed one, this is spectacular, because, you know, mostly they're kind of fundamentalists, and every church has a sign, right? outside the church, which has a little quote from the Bible or something. Yeah. Uh, Jesus is the only way is kind of mostly what you see, stuff like that. But uh, here was something, I think that this is uh, a brand new thing, and it it would have to be, uh, you'd have to call it a combination of of Christian, uh, not fundamentalism, but true Christian values with Buddhist Theravadan value. Can you believe mm-hmm. that? I'm going to tell you what it is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I passed a church and the sign says that which you see with thine eyes is merely temporal. Isn't that Anitya? Impermanence, absolutely right. Yeah, that was the best. I, I've I've often wanted to make a book 
where uh, of different quotes from uh, southern churches, mostly fundamental churches, because some of them are pretty far out. But this was the first Buddhist one that I have ever found. So I just want to let you know that things well, are guess, ha- things are coming up here in my territory. No, that's nice. Well, <laughs> nice is a sort of a silly word for that, but you know, um, Christians that I know uh, myself, rather than just generalizing, you know, uh, you know, we'll talk about the fact that uh, in the New Testament. Uh, there's a lot of stuff about the fact that this material world that we we're so attached to is 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 transient temporal mm. and that uh, the real world is is in the heart I mean it's expressed in ways sometimes that people you know object to but when it's real you know and you're looking in someone's eyes and no matter what religion they are or even if it's organized religion and very conventional. You can see whether you know they have as deep a, a, a presentiment or awareness as any any of the uh, you know bhaktas and Buddhists that we we revere yeah. and love. Uh, it's a great thing to to feel that, and, and it's good for people to get over various prejudices. I know that's true of myself. Yeah, we uh, well we grew up big time with with them with the, the Judeo Christian stuff, and. Yeah. Uh, it took me going to India <laughs> to find my, or my Hindu guru found me and then started talking to me about Christ. Yeah, I always tell that to people and they're like, what? And uh, uh, and we just had, by the way, oh, I wanted to tell you about something else. Uh, about I just came back from that retreat in Maui that we did with Ramdas Krishnas and uh, Roshi Joan Halifax and uh, and this other uh, teacher, Mirabai Star, whom I think you know. Do you know Mirabai Star? Well, she was on our podcast. I know her. Right. Okay. Sorry. Forgot. That. And she's very eclectic and yeah, uh, and and ecumenical. You know. Yeah. Is that and, the word? and ecumenical. I think it is. <laughs> uh, she um, anyhow, she talks a lot about, of course, and she did with us uh, the Christian mystics and uh, um, Saint Teresa of, of Avila. So uh, she did some of this at the retreat. It was fantastic, and uh, it it goes a long way to counter the kind of prejudice people like you and me have, uh, you know, growing up a, a Jewish, Christian, whatever. Uh, and uh, so for those of you who want to check her out, um, that you're interested, uh, these books that she's written, uh, particularly um, St. Teresa of Avila, uh, the Christian mystic. Uh, it's pretty fantastic. So I would highly recommend that. And that brings me to um, our little recommend section of Mind Rolling. Uh, and uh, I have uh, something. And you know, this is around Amazon because, you know, everybody out there, you are really coming along and uh, taking our suggestions seriously and uh and I, I notice in some ways we get, uh, Dave, have you gotten, I've seen some feedback where people go, listen, there's a couple of podcasts that I like to support. Uh, and in this particular case, it was, so I'm, I'm buying half my stuff through Duncan Trussell's portal and half through Mind Rolling or MindPod Network. And, uh, you know, that's fine. That's fantastic. I mean, uh, uh, it's, it's great to see everyone get supported. And, of course, we encourage you uh, to, to continue to do that. So I found something, Dave, and it's, um, we've been taught, we've talked about this writer, uh, famous writer, Anais Nin, 
who we both love. And um, I want to recommend to everybody her uh, her diaries, which you, you get up on Amazon and get either as a printed book or a Kindle. Just as, Here's a just a little bit of an excerpt, Dave, from uh, Anais Nin's uh, gar- uh, diaries. You live like this, sheltered in a delicate world, and you believe you are living. Then you read a book, Lady Chatterley, for instance. <laughs> That's pretty far out, right? <laughs> Lady Chatterley. Or you take a trip, and you discover that you are not living, that you are hibernating. The symptoms of hibernating are easily detectable. First, restlessness. The second symptom, when hibernating becomes dangerous and might degenerate into death, the second symptom is absence of pleasure. That is all. It appears like an innocuous illness, monotony, boredom, death. Millions live like this or die like this without knowing it. They work in offices, they drive a car, they picnic with their families, they raise children, and then some shock treatment takes place. A person, a book, a song, and and it awakens them and saves them from death. Some never awaken. They are like the people who go to sleep in the snow and never awaken. But I am not in danger because my home, my garden, My beautiful life, do not lull me. I am aware of being in a beautiful prison from which I can only escape by writing. So I have written a book about D.H. Lawrence out of gratitude because it was he who awakened me. I took it to Richard, her publisher, and he prepared the contract. And then he talked about his friend Henry Miller. He had shown my manuscripts to Henry Miller, and Miller had said, I have never read such strong truths told with such delicacy. Wow. And, of course, That's we love it. Yeah, isn't that great? I mean, yeah, it is great. It is great. I, 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 I can a piece of writing. It's a real piece of writing. Yeah, no, it's great, Robert, because I, 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 a sort of a, a rhythm that I've noticed in my life over the years is that, you know, you can get bored and you can get despairing and full of doubt and self-deprecation and so on and then you know you hear something or you know it doesn't have to be you know sort of advanced uh you know indian chanting or or something it can be something quite trivial it's it's a stimulant and suddenly you realize you've been living in a fog uh for a day a week a year or life and she's so right that uh, an experience can uh can be the springboard or the touchstone Mm. to returning home on some level and I find, you know, people like Alan Watts and Joseph Campbell and um, uh, Nitsargadatta, many, many, many uh, great masters who've bothered to writ, write or had their lectures transcribed. Mm. Um, His Holiness is one of the most stimulating people. If someone, if someone can just look at a paragraph of something he wrote somewhere or said somewhere, it frequently can... Um, I keep his daily diary thing, you know, it's not his diary, but every day there's a piece of, of, uh, his holiness, his work or speeches, uh, to look at just a little thing every day. 
and it may be kind of puerile in a way, but I, I do it. I look at it, and sometimes it changes the whole day. So, Anais Nim, what a great recommendation. And it's shock yeah. treatment. Don't you like that term? I do, yeah, that's great. You I get never... shock treatments, like a person, you meet a person, you read a book, you hear a song. I mean, that's what we talked about in the first podcast that we did. We didn't call it shock treatment. We call it, what were those transitional moments that led us to yeah. our own transformation or realizing that there was a path. I mean, that's the best way to put it. And she yeah. says, you know, it's awakening and saves them from death and not the death of uh, of going to sleep and never awakening. Just put in a way that it's it's very spiritual. I mean, she she was into Buddhism, I believe, and uh, and her friends, you know, God, I mean, Henry Miller, she wrote this book about D.H. Lawrence. I mean, she is, so you can, this is something great, everybody, uh, and certainly go to Amazon and, and, and pick up her work. Uh, she also wrote a book called Henry and June. She wrote a book called Delta of Venus. I mean, there's, she has a lot of works. And what is this, David? You're talking 20s, 30s, 40s, like that, 30s, 40s, something in there, right? I was, you know, I was turned on to her by various women in my life, or much, much, many years ago, because she was kind of a, a, a great uh, woman articulator. You know, she, she articulated women's issues, but everybody's issues. And she was one of the first 20th century um, women who just, you know, was absolutely influential in the literary world, in the spiritual world, and in our daily world, you know. So we love her, and we're always going to be mentioning her. And uh, we just love her. I, I have a, do you have, do you have another one? I have a couple of, no, go ahead. Well, I just mentioned Joseph Campbell and I know people know about him, but, uh, on Amazon, you can get all his books in hardback or in, um, paperback. And the one I recommend is the obvious one, the hero with a thousand faces, which was the one I read first. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I don't know whether those Bill Moyers, uh, TV shows are available, but there's a book by Campbell and Bill Moyers, which I think maybe has some of those in them. But they were a series, many, many, many shows of Campbell talking on, I guess it was PBS, and that's how I got into him. He's just such a compelling speaker. And a, 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 a not so much humorous as just had a wonderful take on everything. Mm -hmm. So that's one of my recommendations. I have a few. Um, the other one is for Australian-style uh, soft-eating licorice. What? <laughs> Well, we gotta, we gotta, you know, change things around a bit. I like it. It's licorice is really good for you. Um, and I don't know how much sugar this has in it, but I have it, and it's soft, and it's tasty, and it comes all the way from Australia, <laughs> and it's on Amazon, and it's very inexpensive. And another recommendation. Wait, I have, wait. What, what do you mean by soft? Is is this? For, well, well, licorice. You know, sort of real licorice is kind of chewy. You have to really chew. You know? Yeah. This stuff is soft. You put it in your mouth and you it chew dissolves? it. It doesn't dissolve. <laughs> Eventually, I guess. But it's, it's good. It's good for the digestion, I tell myself, even mm. though it's sort of candy. And um, uh, the only problem, I actually have a problem with it, which I've now solved, which is when I open the package, it makes exactly the same noise as the package with the treats for my dear cat. So if I open the licorice, she comes running out of nowhere. It doesn't matter where she is. She's there instantaneously giving me a treat. And it's caused some problems. So I've now put them in a jar. And I want to go from the sublime to the ridiculous because Good. those things cost very little. But if you're searching, as I was, for 20 years for a portable air conditioner, I finally found one which is right next to me. It's called a winter, a winter which is appropriate, but it's spelled W-H-Y-N-T-E-R. 
It's a 14,000 BTU portable air conditioner. And it's the first one that I ever felt had any value because it's fantastically powerful, quite, you know, really chills the room out and the equipment. So I have it next to my computers and so on. And it really is good. And it's it's expensive, but it's not that expensive. It's, like, it's not $14,000. I thought you were going to say it was $14,000. No, it's 14, about $14,000 BTUs. $450 is not no, nothing. Not. It's, but it's not bad for something that could... Uh, it's something that people use for server rooms on the whole, I found. That, mm -hmm. you know, they just stick it in the room with the big server and it cools everything down. Oh, yeah. You know, but it's really a good thing. And it's not that expensive. And if you get it on Amazon, we, we, we make enough money to actually buy some... Starbucks coffee. Um, if everyone bought one of these, wow. Boy, yeah, we, we would be really in, yeah, the, in the dough, huh? Rolling in it. Yeah. And <laughs> I have some other recommendations, but I'm going to leave them for next week because, you know, we've had enough. Yeah. From licorice to air conditioners. That's pretty good, Dave. I try. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. You have something. I know you've got something to talk about. Yeah, I just wanted to mention one thing. We got yeah. a, a tweet from someone, kind of a rather acerbic tweet, saying, all we talk about is how much we hate the Republicans, which I thought was rather a narrow perspective on the 108 or 109 podcasts. We do occasionally talk about maniac Republicans, but I don't think that we, we're obsessed with that. Do you? I, I, I really don't. I'm, I mean... I, I feel pretty obsessed, actually. I have okay. to admit it, because I just read... You're bringing some, I just was reading the New York Times having my herbal tea, and <laughs> I read about this guy, uh, Norman. His name is Norman Brayman. Do you know Norman? No, I know this one. You I don't, don't know Norman. No. Norman lives, he's like the king of, uh, of automobile sales, and he's in Florida, and he's the primary backer of, of Marco Rubio, who has come? Who comes from very, very working man-like uh, family, and he himself—he's like the candidate with the least amount of resources. And Norman is like—I uh, think he's putting ten million to start into his fund. Okay, ten million, and they have a very close relationship. In, in there was a whole New York Times article about it, and I—and I'm admitting to whoever that person was. That sent that uh, sent that tweet. I admit to you that when I read stuff uh, promoting Republican candidates that are all about um, cutting uh, support, social ser service support, uh, food stamps. I mean, I don't even know exactly what Marco Rubio. Do you know what Marco Rubio standing on? What platform? Yeah, the same old stuff as everyone else. He's a little, possibly a bit more, a bit more progressive on immigration because he is he's Cuban, Cuban or he's yeah. There's some question about that too. But on the whole, yeah, it's the same old thing. You know, he's just cuter than Jeb, right? Uh, and you know, younger and you know, reasonably intelligent. I think I don't, I don't think he's a, a fool or anything. Uh, but he toes the line pretty much, and I think he's a. I think he's going to be a, a strong candidate. Actually, he's a the real... leading candidate, is what I read. Is he? Uh -huh. Yeah, at this point, um, and so to to you out there who uh, may be listening to this or anybody, yes, I have a I have a reactive problem with uh, the Republicans who um, stand for what they stand for because I feel 
like it is so hurtful to such a large swath of our society that uh, that I just, uh, you know, we talk, David and I talk all the time about us and them and not creating polarization. And that's, it's a work in progress for me. I mean, I, I read this article and I cannot, uh, I admit that I, I am absolutely reactive over it. So, um, I don't think that this comprises a greater part uh, or any hardly any part of we do talk about it from the us and them point of view but I don't think we're um actually going after on a day-to-day basis or week-to-week basis the republicans and um I I would hope that uh, uh a dialogue could ensue in these in this next election that would address some of this i think that they need to address some of this particularly um uh, along the lines of the social divide and the polarization there's that that's enough of that response right yeah yeah i mean and i'm no different i you know i'm there with rago on this I, I i tend to bristle when i hear these people talking about tax breaks for billionaires and then uh, insulting uh, single mothers who are trying to, you know, <laughs> help their children and, and are fighting for various uh, benefits. And and then we hear that they're lazy, good-for-nothings who don't want to work. Uh, and and this, this repels me and I can't accept it and I can't accept anyone's, you know, there's just no, no altruism there. There's no public service there. There's just uh, espousing those that give them their money. And that is immoral and no one can ever, ever argue me out of that. And on the other side of things, that's not like the Democrats who are getting funded by large donors as well, as Absolute. well, who have their agenda that they do suck up to. So it's not like it's yeah. it's it's not one sided to the Republicans. It just no, so happens not. that there is a little bit seemingly more compassion on on the Democrats. Okay, enough politics. Get on with uh, what's the next thing. Uh, well. Um, I I was um, I keep my tricycle, oh, and yeah. I don't mean my three wheel bicycle, <laughs> but <laughs> which yes, I never. That's had. How he, um, I always gets to one, the grocery I, store in his tricycle. <laughs> yeah, I always wanted one because my balance is so terrible that falling off a bike was one of my hobbies at one point. <laughs> um, but three wheel bike, no tricycle is the Buddhist magazine uh, that's been around for a long time, and I keep them, and occasionally I just pull them out randomly and. They don't date because if Buddhism has not dated after two and a half millennia, I don't think it's going to date after 17 years. <laughs> so I found one from 1998, actually. And um, it's it's an article by someone called Patricia Anderson. And I say someone like because I don't know Patricia. And, uh, you know, she may she may be still writing or whatever, but she wrote a fantastic article. And it's I have called, a friend named Patricia Anderson, and I don't know if it's her. And I, she's a writer. I mean, it's it would blow my mind if it's her. I'm, I'm going to call well, her. Well, it says it says Patricia Anderson is a writer living in upstate New York. Well, Does she I, lives in Woodstock. It's got to be her. It could right? well be. That's um, nuts. Well, she wrote a book called All of Us: Americans Talk About the Meaning of Death, and. Hmm. You know, it says she's currently working on a book about money, but that was 17 years ago. So uh, who knows? Yeah. But um, anyway, Patricia, you wrote a great article. It's called Real or Pretend. And what it's about basically is, you know, she was a practicing Buddhist, a very serious one. 
And like many of the ones that Rago and I know, she studied at Tale of the Tiger in uh, Vermont, which I did also, uh, with uh, Chagyam Trungpa Rinpoche, uh, mm-hmm. the great modernizing, Americanizing, but nevertheless extraordinarily wise and helpful uh, Lama. And uh, she was you know, somewhat more of a conservative type of Buddhist. Um, Dave, you know, can I interrupt? Yeah, yeah. Does it say anything in there that she she uh, that one of her teachers was Dujam Rinpoche? Um, it might, uh-huh. but I, I, you know, uh, Dujam she, Rinpoche was a great uh, Lama as well. Well, she mentions a couple of people, um, but I I'll when I get to it. Okay, I'll, sorry, uh, but uh, it's no, it's somewhere in the middle of the article. But basically, you know, as many of you know out there, Trungpa uh, warned against spiritual materialism, uh, which doesn't mean, you know, buying a lot of yoga pants. Uh, what it means is uh, including the trap of mistaking mind-blowing experiences for realization, something Raga and I talk about all the time, uh, that, you know, people in the 60s and 70s would tend to say, oh, my God, you know, I took a trip and I saw Jesus or I saw, um, you know, Miller Reaper or something, and she didn't have much time for that. She was, she was talking about, really, mindfulness, reality, looking at the reality of your life and working with that, and that seemed like a very uh, progressive thing, and, and she was happy with it. However, she could not accept that within Buddhism there were gods and deities and goddesses and daikinis and harukas and so on. She just thought that that was pretty much balderdash, and it was just all about representing states of mind in a Jungian kind of way. And so she she just poo-pooed it and wasn't interested. When people talked about, um, you know, Mahakala, Yamantaka, Palden Lamo, these are Tara even, she just thought, well, those are nice ideas and nice pictures, but no reality. Yeah. And so she went on with that for a long time. And then one time she was in a corridor at Tail of the Tiger, going from one room to another, and saw Trungpa at the other end of the corridor and just sort of said hi to him. And he, he said hi back. And then as he was walking away, she saw a, a glow of, of light around him, which was undeniable. Yeah. And she was mind blown by it. And then uh, he said something to her maybe a few minutes later, and the light was still there. And because of her predisposition to not want to see things like that, she was mind blown. Many years later, uh, after she'd sort of dismissed this again, as some kind of nothingness that she'd fantasized about she was confronted by a three-dimensional Ganesh. Ganesh, the great Hindu deity, uh, who, you know, had a human head at one time, but his powerful father cut it off and replaced it with an elephant head, and he became the, uh, the symbol of the remover of obstacles. And she saw this deity, and as she puts it somewhere in the article, not as just a flashing picture, but as a being in front of her who just looked right at her and would not go away. And from then on, she had to accept that there was something in the universe that she did not understand and did not tie in with her very, very um, closely held and extremely well thought through Buddhist uh, practice. And she went on to talk in the article a great deal about this. I won't quote much more, but uh, she says things like, um, you know, uh, the, well, here's one. The Buddha taught that the true nature of reality is intrinsically empty, that we live in a web of projection, 
a vast network of pretend with which we struggle and suffer. But the conclusion she came to after these strong visions, and as she puts it, I was absolutely straight, no LSD, no marijuana, no nothing. Uh, she came to the conclusion that the Buddha did not necessarily mean there weren't interlopers in this realizations, in these realizations, and that the deities can't just be thought of as representers or visuals to help us that have got nothing to do with reality, mm. but it's something to do with our subconscious. She'd stopped thinking that and realized, as her, as her um, root guru told her, hey, accept. It's great to be as a child. And ch children have fantasies and visualizations. You are having one where Ganesh himself came to you to help you get through this hardness and create some softness in your awareness. And I just thought this was a great talking point because uh, I've gone through this dilemma millions of times in my life about what, why, you know, Danny said to me recently, our friend Danny said, I don't get it. How come Buddhists have got these gods and goddesses when most teachers, you know, express that that's not what this teaching is about. It's not about outside gods and goddesses. It's about an internal change and an amelioration of, of awareness. So I, I couldn't answer Danny. I didn't say, well, you know, they could just have a wrong conception of Buddhism. Well, wait, we, we should still. make clear one thing, Dave, though. Uh, yeah. In Theravadan Buddhism, which would be called the original Buddhist um, thought, there are no gods and goddesses and no self and all of that, right? And right. it's only when you get to Mahayana or Vajrayana Buddhism of Tibet, which was uh, Buddhism mixed with the uh, Bon, right? Uh, yeah. fr from the ancient days, did you get these uh, deities and deity worship and um, gurus even? I mean, Theravadan Buddhism doesn't have gurus. They have teachers, for sure, which certainly act as, as gurus, but they're not called as such. They're not the kind of devotional practices that we are familiar, of course, with bhakti yoga, uh, and and that really translates to in, in Tibetan Buddhism. So just uh, for Danny's edification, you can't lump all of Buddhism into one thing and saying, well, why do they blah blah? You know, right, right. But it, it okay. So so we can't that, talk about this in terms of Tibetan Buddhism. No. I think, but, yeah. But she, Patricia, who wrote this article, makes it quite clear. She's a good writer. That this was not in the classic terms. A hallucination but was a being that was in front of her and that she realized that there were certain aspects of this universe that she had uh, been prejudiced against or just didn't understand or just threw away as she put it what's the difference between Tara and Santa Claus you know um, or, or uh, you know that that should lead us to uh, I believe something you have under your yeah here which is from our dear friend and uh, Krishna Das who had some stuff to say about this kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. Are you um, ready to uh, roll Yeah, that? I can I can roll that. But the, uh, David, uh, just so everybody knows, basically told me the central concept of this particular article from uh, from Tricycle. And uh, I said, oh, God, that remembers, uh, that reminds me, rather, of something we did with Krishna sometime way back, or you know, about a year ago. And uh, that really refers to this. That's That's funny. So, yeah, why don't I play this? This is great, eh? Playing a, an episode that uh, yeah. 
Uh, I'll just play a little bit about it. It's like, uh, I love this. Culling through our archives, here is Krishnadas with David and myself. Uh, Talking about Indian deities and um, statues and murtis Mm. and how there's no way we can relate with them the way that Indians can. And, uh, And you said... It's a long way well, from... Don't, don't nope. ruin it. Okay. All right. Well, then tell it. We then. were talking about that, and I said, you know, I spent half my life in India. I've, I've lived there. I'm a member of any number of families, uh, very close with the, the culture and everything. And still, for me, I couldn't honestly say to you that uh, when I see a murti in a, in a, which is a consecrated, supposedly living statue, in a temple that I truly believe that that statue is alive, whereas the Indians, they, they, it's a, it's of course it's alive. You know, they, mm. they they grow up in this culture that provides that kind of wiring, and then they get the benefits of that too in their own being in their heart. I said, look, here in America, you know, we we grew up with Mickey Mouse. I said, yeah. so it's a long road from Mickey Mouse to Ron. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long road from Mickey Mouse to Rom. <laughs> that was the essence of that. And uh, the the truth is, uh, and we, David and I both have, as he mentioned, you know, this is a common experience for those who get on the path and, and suddenly this is outside of our culture. I mean, it's, uh, especially, uh, I mean, David and I are Jewish. We grew up Jewish. That meant, you know, Remember Moses, the idol, and smashing it? You know, the idol of the, well, the cow or whatever it is. And then you go to India, and the cow is like sacred. In fact, the bull, uh, Shiva's Nandi, is very sacred. So it's like you're just flipped over on your head, and you have no idea what the hell this stuff is about. And I'll just uh, tell you a, l- a little personal experience uh, just with this stuff. I mean, first of all, when we went to India and we went to Nimkaroli Baba Maharaji's temples, the main deity there was Hanuman, the monkey god, right? In fact, I remember at one time being shown a picture of our dear, dear close friend and mentor, K.K. Shah, who had gone to uh, Maharaji's temple. I don't know, you may have seen this picture, David, but if not, i got to show it to you. Uh, he went to the temple in Brindavan, and uh, right before you walk into the actual compound is the Hanuman Temple, Mandir. And he went there, and he was just paying his usual respects to Hanuman, whose eyes were, you know, designed to look straight out. And KK was standing about ten, f- uh, well, eight feet to the left of the central uh, part of the deity where his face was. And somebody took a picture in that moment that he was pranaming, right, paying obeisance. And in the picture, you see Hanuman's eyes shifted to the direction of KK, who was standing on the side. Have you seen that picture? Do I ever tell you about that picture? I don't think you've told me about it. I don't really? think I have. I, I really it's, want to. It's, it's astounding. Remarkable. It's not because, yeah. you know, this is back in. Uh, 
1970. I mean, when did KK go? That this must have been in the uh, mid late 60s that this happened to KK. There was no Photoshop, folks. Okay, this was just a picture <laughs> that was not photoshopped. So I remember seeing that and going, "Holy shit! Is this this is way beyond anything that I, you know, could think of?" And I just thought all of that Hindu stuff was kind of really cool iconography, and and it was colorful and it was fun. And I remember going to the Hare Krishna temple because I liked the food, and then you'd have all these deities all around there, and it was just. It was like a beautiful uh, acid trip, actually. <laughs> that's, w that's what it was to me, until I went to India. And then I saw this picture, and that particular Morty, I always, f you know, I felt, wow, there's something here. So there was a presence. It wasn't until I went to, I actually, many, many years later, 20 years later, I took my mother to India, talking about thinking of moms on Mother's Day. Um... And I remember we were in a really fancy hotel in Banaras, in Varanasi, Kashi, where everybody goes to die in India, and they are burned on the banks of the Ganges. Not everybody, but a lot of people. And my mother was dying from terrible diarrhea and stomach screw-up, so she was <laughs> in the hotel. I left her there, and... I had read a book. Here's another book, by the way, that's fantastic. Diana Eck, E-C-K, I believe. And it's, it's uh, uh, a history or um, kind of a travelogue of Benares. It's a fantastic book because it tells you all of the places that you can go and temples and so on and so forth. And in there, she said, this temple that I went to for the mother... Uh, and this mother, the name of the the st statue uh, or this representation of the deity was Sankata Devi. And that means um, she who gives shelter to her devotees, takes care of them. And I thought, well, okay, I should, I should try this. I should go down there. Even though I'm not that into these Murtis, although I like Hanuman and because Maharaji had really... You know, related to us, who Hanuman is, and I love the the representation of service. I love the Hanuman Chalisa, so I thought I'll give this a shot. Okay, so I went, and it wasn't easy to find. And she gave the directions, and it's going. You know, I went down the river on a boat, and I got out of the boat on this specific landing got it's called and i went up winding through the small alleys of benares which is one of the most fantastic places i've ever been and i would ask in my broken hindi you know, from one place to another sankata devi sankata devi and they finally got me to this way in the midst of this maze i found this this deity I went up there, and I was like the only Westerner. They probably hadn't seen a Westerner in quite some time because it's so hard to find. And the priest that was there accepting flowers and fruit and money and all that, uh, he immediately uh, caught my eye, and he motioned for me to come over. And I went and stood in front of this deity who had this golden face and... I had this complete, utter, out-of-body kind of experience. 
standing in front of this murti, this statue. I mean, I was taken beyond the physical and understood experientially the vastness of compassion and love that the uh, of the female principle it was beyond hinduism beyond my own upbringing and as as a jew beyond everything i was com- i completely grokked if you know to use an old robert heinlein book word uh, I I just got it, and through this, this was just a, a vehicle, and, and and it allowed me to understand the divine feminine principle around uh, compassion and um, and being in in the um, being in under the umbrella of that love and compassion, and I never had another experience like that. It was singular. It was like um, Patricia's experience here, I guess, uh, of Ganesh, right? It was a similar yeah. thing. And so uh, these things do happen, and they take you beyond the physical reality. Absolutely. And it, it happened. It can happen. And David and I have read enough you know, wonderful Tibetan books to go back to the Tibetan iconography. Uh, and... and you know, we there's a certain trust you have with some of these incredible lamas who suggest exactly that 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 is the um, the re- potential result of focusing on of deity worship, and so it's as real as anything else is real. Yeah, she, yeah absolutely. She's uh, just let me quote something which relates to what you said. Patricia says in the article, "We walk around a wash." In unseen worlds and forces, sound waves, electromagnetic waves, the subatomic universe, the human aura, the famous quantum soup. And I think Mm. she's suggesting there that actually what she's saying is that people talk about Ganesh as a mover of obstacles, but she goes further and says that he represents also uh, opening vulnerability and the unfolding of softness of compassion. That Ganesh is a uh, a way in which we can open ourselves, open our hearts, and that that's more the traditional view of him, and that's what she needed. So the Lama said to her, "You needed it. Don't treat it badly." And it makes me smile because uh, at this point in time, it's very interesting to note that a certain great uh, American master called Tom Brady. <laughs> uh, had a statue of Ganesh oh, right. in his locker room uh, before the uh, before big games, particularly before the, the Super last Bowl. Super Bowl. Yeah. Yes, and and knew enough to think that uh, he could find that softness, even if it was in the deflation of the ball. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I don't want to trivialize this very high sounding conversation that rock think after what you just said you just brought it down way down to the I bottom did, here with I did. tom brady jesus christ oh my god yeah no he that ruined everything <laughs> <laughs> well we try on mind rolling not to pontificate so my one of my functions here is to 
I feel I feel like I was a huge balloon after that story I told about my experience with Sankata Devi. By the way, whose oh, name exactly means remover of uh, troubles, and uh, and being under the umbrella of that. Um, and so, yeah, big balloon. You took a big needle. needle and pricked that balloon, and now I feel completely deflated. Jesus. No, no, no. It's a Buddhist thing to do, I'm told. Yes. No, uh, it's, you, you just got to do it. But yeah. it, is, it is interesting to me that it took you so long to get to her. Yeah. And it was such a hard journey. And it's frequently like that, isn't it? I mean, the things you can just pick up a magazine and read, they just go right through your head. And sometimes they affect you, sometimes they don't. But when you have to struggle to find something... I don't know. It, there's something there. There's something there. Maybe I don't. I can't explain it. It's a mystery. But you, as you said, you you just would say that word of her name to people, and eventually you got to her, and the effect was profound, powerful, yeah. and one time only, from what you said, yeah. of that exact kind of thing. Yeah, it, it uh, didn't didn't happen again. And it's just like that Anais Nin thing, right? Shock treatment. I got shock yeah. treatment in, in that moment that turned my turned my normal life upside down. And to this day, that uh, uh, picture I have of that uh, particular statue has been with me since that time, which was uh, you know decades ago, and uh, has has been meaningful for me. And it's something that I share with people, and you know who come over to the house and so on and so forth. So. Um, there, those moments are invaluable. That what happened to Patricia, uh, what happened to me in that particular incident, incident, um, by just, I opened a book and I was just fascinated by the possibility of, of what this woman, Diana Eck had recommended. And, uh, and, and these are the things that happened that, um, and we talked about this, by the way, at the retreat which was uh, cultivating the courage to love was the uh, theme of the retreat. Uh, by the way, you can go to ramdas.org. I think uh, we streamed it last weekend, uh, weekend before this past weekend, and it's going to be available for another week or so uh, until we get the full edit done, just so you know. Dave, uh, David will be doing, a um, in his other hat, He'll be doing a beautiful cultivating mu movie. He's uh, he and I have done several together, and David's uh, does a lot of intense work to get these things uh, ready for people that are, are pretty meaningful. So uh, we talked about trust as a primary ingredient to being able to take one put one foot in front of the others on a day-to-day -day basis. And, and that's a lot about what we talk about here at Mind Bowling. How can we put one foot in front of each other in some kind of balanced manner? Uh, and what, what's our basis for being able to do that? And trust, not faith. Faith comes after trust, in my mind. And that trust is you have these little shock treatments, right? Something happens in your life. It, it could be just a song. It could be a book. It could be another person. It could be a yoga posture that you get into. And suddenly, it, you become one with everything in that moment, just like happened to me in front of this particular Morty. And th then you trust. Wow. There, that is there a reality 
the reality I'm living. And, and we talk again, going back to Anais Nin, the day-to-day take the kids to school, um, you know, go to work, come home, prepare dinner, and, and getting lost in that. We have these shock treatments to give us the trust that we absolutely have. Uh, there is a reality that we can connect to that um, allows us uh, to have a life that is way more balanced. So uh, I think that's really important and has been for me, which is to really acknowledge yeah, these moments. You me know, too. When we talk and about it's not them. just, you know, a book. It could be a friend, you know, who you really trust because that friend doesn't lie or isn't involved in some kind of fantasy world all the time. And Christian Das is a very good example in my life. Uh, because you'd be hard put to find someone who's more pragmatic, actually. It might surprise some of you. But he's just not uh, an airy-fairy type of human being. Uh, he's extremely down-to-earth and will never, uh, in my memory at any rate, does not say things that he doesn't believe in and, and, and has experienced. And so that is a trust that was so important to me that, you know, uh, not just him, but all the people who were in India and were all... You know, not that different from you or I uh, out there listening. You know, people who not at all, not at you know, all. Wanted, they they wanted to seek uh, seek and find, but um, they weren't people who were uh, obsessed with the astral or, you know, having visions. These were normal people, as it were, intelligent people, uh, but normal. And so my trust came from them, really, as vicarious in a way. But it's extremely important when someone that you know does not lie to you about other things, you know, no, I did not crash your car. Somebody hit me. And you know that <laughs> actually somebody did hit the car and it wasn't a lie because they don't lie on the whole. And then they tell you that, you know, they stood in front of a statue and, and, and this happened. And, it, and you're not predisposed to go, oh, well, I don't believe this person because they're full of shit all the time. It's the exact opposite. And, you know, certainly when I was um, listening to Trungpa, just to go back to him for a minute, anybody who was in his presence knew that this man was absolutely incapable of, 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 of putting nonsense in front of you. You know, if anything, he would just talk about what had just happened to him. And he was a great llama, a great respected llama, wearing a very uh, nice sports jacket and a tie. And, and, you know, cavalry twilled trousers and broke shoes and doing all the things that we did in America. And when he spoke about very, very, uh, what shall I say, esoteric matters of Vajrayana Buddhism and other Buddhisms and other things, he just listened because, you know, you knew this guy was not a bullshitter. He just was not capable of him. Some of you might not think that he was a pure lama. I don't, I don't know about that, but I know that he taught me um, a lot of what I still swim in, you know, mm. 40 years later. And that trust, as Raghu says, and I agree with you so much, Raghu, that before faith, trust. Because otherwise it's like, you know, um, you're not verifying. As Ronald Reagan says, trust but verify. Oh, <laughs> another, God, Ronald. Another great quote. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> That's two pinpricks here. God, as soon as yeah, I see that face, I'm like, okay, I'm the That's Republican. That's my job, you know, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> yeah, but, but you know, trust and verify, he was talking about, you know, nuclear arms reduction, which, in fact, he did do with Brezhnev, and we should at least give him credit for that, because no one else seems to have even touched upon the idea of, of reducing these nightmarish, monstrous weapons in the world. But we're talking really about um, knowing 
that the person that is conveying this to you uh, is either a master of great distinction who spent his or her entire life studying meditation, mindfulness, compassion, altruism, change, awareness, awakeness, and speaks to you and says something. And it's not that easy to say, oh, well, he just studied for 60 years, eight hours a day. I don't believe him. It's not that easy to say that. And so uh, that's one of the reasons that we do mind rolling, I think, Rago, is mm -hmm. to pass on some of this stuff uh, that we've been fortunate enough to yeah. come across and hope that it helps a little bit. Again, without pontificating, we're not really helpers. We enjoy this. But it is important to, you know, to talk to people about things that, that um, you've genuinely experienced. And if they trust you, it can be a, a bit of a shock treatment. Back to that. Yeah. You know. Perfect. Yeah. You know. yeah. So, um, so what else have you got up your sleeve today? <laughs> I have nothing. <laughs> nothing. Oh, I have right. nothing. I, there. We're, we're there. Yeah, we're there. We're, we're at the end of our uh, sponsor's allotted time, is the way I usually say it. And uh, so we do uh, appreciate, again, everybody's support. Please continue the support. Go to, oh, we do have a couple of things to say about MindPod Network. Uh, we have a couple of additions that uh, you should go check, mindpodnetwork.com. Not only, by the way, are you uh, able to stream the podcast directly there, or you can go subscribe on iTunes, but um, we have Dave, Tara Brock, who's an incredible Theravadan teacher, friend of Jack Cornfield's, and he suggested to her, hey, you should be part of this deal because it is absolutely becoming a wonderful destination for people to share some great, great heart wisdom. So that is something that will be happening, Dave, in the next week or two. And we have a couple of young folks, younger folks. Uh, Chris Grasso has joined us. Michael Donovan, our good friend, who's an amazing photographer. And, uh, and we, I'm going to announce this, although I haven't gotten that far in terms of getting it going, which means uh, creating a page for Joseph Goldstein. And yeah, Joseph, this is exciting to me. Yeah, really exciting. Joseph is uh, a close friend and one of the th of Sharon Salzberg and Jack Cornfield, and one of the three people that have brought Vipassana back to the West in a in its uh, estimable way in which it's helped so many people, including me and Dave. Yeah, and, his book. It, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, we, well, we, we talked with Joseph in a, a previous podcast, and his book, Mindfulness, A Practical Guide to Awakening, which is really about the Satipatthana Sutta, but that all sounds very elevated, but it, and it is a marvelous book. But this book really is a deep explication of the unfolding of mindfulness in a human being and, and how to go there and what it means. Joseph is just wonderful and i'm i'm honored and thrilled that he's part of the mind pod network yeah, yeah. and yeah. so and and with michael and and chris also who uh, articulate such clarity and uh you know at, at an age when many people are thinking more about which club to go to or you know whatever uh these guys are uh, are really amazing too yeah so we have that coming up and uh 
please go to MindPod Network and do continue the support and the feedback. We love the mail, and you can uh, send a, a note through uh, MindPod Network or directly through MindRolling. Dave? Yeah. That's it for today. This is, we're going right. to, shock treatment. Yeah. Equals trust. How about that? Great. <laughs> okay. All right, everybody. We'll see you next week. This is Mind Rolling with David Silver and Raghu Marcus. Yeah, till next week. <laughs>